Welcome, friends, to the June 13th episode of my podcast, Medicine in Action. This is Dr. Vikas Malhotra. Today, we thought we would do something different. Uh, my son, family, friends have been asking questions about COVID-19 infection, and uh, I invited my son, Vishnu, who's a high school junior, uh, to come and ask me those questions on the air as we record the podcast, and I'll try to answer them. So I'd like to welcome Vishnu to our program. Welcome, Vishnu. Thank you. Uh, for, thank you for having me. Uh, so I want to start with my first question about where we're at right now and what's really the current status of the pandemic. Uh, and going along with that, a lot of the news has been focused on the protests that have surrounded Black Lives Matter and other groups. And I'm wondering how the protests actually affected the virus. Great question, Vishnu. So first, I want to start by saying a word that my sympathies uh, completely lie with the people who are protesting and this uh, issue that has to be raised and resolved and public consciousness has to be has to be done. But the the one worry that we have is that number of people getting together uh, would possibly increase the spread of the pandemic. So far, that hasn't shown to be the case, but it is early. Recall again that the incubation period for the virus can be anywhere from 5 to 14 days. Um, my one word of caution to anybody who is uh, either part of the protest groups or thinking about participating is to please uh, wear masks. I encourage uh, everybody to do so. The one advantage to protesting in the open is that the open air transmission of the virus seems to be very low. So when the volume of air present is high, the chance of the virus getting from one person to the next becomes much lesser than in closed spaces. So we did unfortunately see a little bit of a bump, in, especially in Florida, uh, where we're recording in the cases. So yesterday was the highest number of single new cases recorded in Florida. And that could have been to do with the uh, Memorial Day uh, when people were out on the beach a lot, people who went out to more to eat outside or socialize. So it's just a reminder that we need to still be cautious, although the rate of increase that was happening across the country has plateaued, but the plateau is still very high. I want to clarify that point, which means that in the beginning, we were seeing the rate of new cases going up exponentially every day. Now the number of cases is not going up, but still we have a lot of cases. And we're still losing close to a thousand Americans a day uh, dying from this. So it is uh, by no means done and we'll need to continue our patience for the next six to nine months. Hmm. Uh, speaking on masks, like you recommended everyone to use in the protests, a lot of people wonder whether or not they're really effective in either preventing the virus or for serving a real purpose. So could you uh, reiterate on why masks are important? Very good question. And I, it's, it's worth spending a few minutes saying it. It sounds like a broken record, but I want to assure my listeners that there is enough scientific studies done, at least three big studies that I'm familiar with, that have consistently shown that masks cut down the rate of transmission significantly. And of course, the higher quality caliber the mask, the lower the risk. But even a simple cloth face mask or double cloth face mask will cut down the risk 60-70%. Surgical masks, which are what you would see the doctor's hospital using, also come in different levels, level one, two, and three. 
even a simple level one surgical mass cut it down 80-85%. N95R the most effective, but they are not required for the general public. Somebody feels more comfortable using them, by all means do it. But it is not necessary to get an N95 unless you are directly handling a person with known COVID. But I want to again implore everybody to please use masks. If everybody does them, we will definitely save lives, no question about it. And this is not for life. This is again for a short period of time till we can get a handle on the vaccines and the treatments. A two-sided question. Uh, for one, what's the state of testing right now? And speaking on testing, uh, what's the impact of the World Health Organization's communication, which said that asymptomatic carriers may not be as important for spreading the virus, which they later backtracked on? So how does that all play into testing on uh, both antibody and regular testing? Again, very good question. So the good news is that the tests have become more readily available. At least in the U.S., I can say that most people who wish to be tested are able to get tested. The gold standard for the infection still is the PCR test. There is no substitute for that, which is still the nasal or the oropharyngeal swab. In my last week's podcast, I mentioned a study compared the nasal to the oral swabs, and the oral swabs were pretty effective. So there is no reason if somebody is very uncomfortable with a deep nasal swab, they don't have to. They can just get a swab from the either the front of the nose, like what you call the anterior nares, or even an oral swab, those are fine. So that's a PCR test that checks for the infection, very reliable, reproducible, not 100% sensitive or specific, which means it'll not pick up every last case of the infection, but it is very specific in the sense that if it is positive, then the virus has been detected. Uh, so the antibody testing, on the other hand, is still a little bit more of a dilemma. And the problem is, we simply do not have the data to tell us which antibody is the actual effective neutralizing antibody, which means somebody could have an antibody titer that is high, but those antibodies don't fight the virus well and vice versa. So unfortunately, I still cannot endorse the antibody test, but the standard PCR test for actually checking for the active infection is much more readily available. But the numbers we're doing are still low. Currently in the U.S., we're doing about 300,000 tests a day. We really need to be doing about 3 million or almost 10 times that much. So if you go back to my podcast, maybe six, seven weeks ago, one of my first podcast, I mentioned that we could have cut down the amount of pain, suffering, deaths if we had more massive testing available. And the idea is simple. If we test very widely, if every American could be tested, or also I'm talking overseas, if people could be tested more widely, then you can isolate and track down the contacts and lessen the spread. But I think that we're past that point now. It's a matter of identifying people early and quarantining them. So that's the current status of the testing. But I'm happy to tell you that the tests, at least in the United States, are much more readily available than they were a month ago. Hmm. Should, By the way, sorry, yeah. on the second question about the WHO, I want to clarify so that communication from WHO was erroneous. It did not come out the right way it should have, which means that they were trying to actually say that the risk of transmission from asymptomatic carriers may be lesser than they previously thought, but still a significant portion of patients are asymptomatic. So 
In my opinion, nothing has changed with the medical science, which tells us that people can be asymptomatic and can shed the virus, and that could be a way of transmission. Should people go to the gym and to daycare? And will your advice on this change as the summer goes on and we enter uh, winter? Absolutely. Very good questions again. So I, I, I again want to emphasize to the listeners that this is a short term problem. Yes, it seems very long and we're all already sick and tired of it and want to get out of it, but this problem will be resolved and it'll turn into a chronic manageable infection. So presently, my own personal recommendation is for people not to go to the gyms. And the reason I say that is because again, closed environments with people exercising and obviously breathing heavily put a lot of virus out in the air. So I am not in favor of that. Of course, people have the chance to make their own decisions based on the risk factor profile. Similarly for the daycares, uh, it's going to be very hard for young children to put masks or to keep them socially distant. So it is a, it's a very challenging problem for parents who are working or have to work to support themselves. But if at all possible, if grandparents or other family members can help in, it would be advisable to avoid daycares. 14 days after being exposed to the virus, can you still have symptoms for the virus uh, itself? So two parts to the question. So one is, if you were exposed to the virus, most people, I would say 90 to 95% of people develop symptoms within about five to six days. So that's the good news is within a week of an exposure, you haven't gotten sick, chances are you will not. But the, there are case studies in which case up to 14 days, people have gotten sick. The second part is how long does the virus actually last if you get the infection? Two to three weeks, people can, this lingers quite a bit and of course varies. And of course, some people get very sick, in which case they could be uh, a few months. But on an average, I would say three weeks is an average for symptoms to linger on. Have we seen any evidence that the virus is mutating or changing? A very good question. So all viruses change a little bit. But basically, have we seen enough of a change to say that the nature of the virus has changed? My answer would be no. The virus is still extremely infectious. It is still extremely potent and has the potential to cause life-threatening complications in a lot of people, and those are unpredictable, unfortunately. So I would say the mutation rate is low for this virus, which is an encouraging news on the vaccine front because if the virus mutates a lot, then it is very hard to make a vaccine that will work all the time. Uh, but so far, that looks not to be as much of a problem. Hmm. And I want to finish off with a series of questions on the end to all of this, which is the vaccine. And I wanted to ask about, number one, an update on the vaccines that are, that are being developed now. Number two, will they be safe when they come out? And number three, uh, how long will the immunity last after taking a vaccine? Or is it too hard to tell? Excellent question. So I'll start with the quick update on the vaccine. And every week we have news on that front, which is encouraging news. So there are 10 plus vaccines across the world right now that are in phase two and later clinical trials. Okay, there are almost 70 to 80 other vaccines that are in development all over the world. So that's extremely encouraging news. Now there are at least three that are in phase two trials 
in, in very good randomized control settings. And uh, two of them are going into phase three in July next month. The, the question about, so currently what it looks like is that early 2021 is still a very good target date for when we should be able to reasonably expect a vaccine if nothing major happens as far as uh, problems that come along. We are trying to get about 25 to 30,000 patients on some of these phase three trials, which would be awesome. So the second part of your question about safety directly ties into how many people are actually tested during the studies. And how that works is we've been able to cut down the time of vaccine development by doing a lot of things in parallel, which means normally we would wait for animal studies to be over before we would start even phase one human trials. But in this case, we could not. So while animal studies were going on, we also started phase one and phase two. Now, what we cannot and should not skimp on is the phase three, which is we are exposing a wide variety of patients. And that's another important point. Young, old, and 18 to 55, all age groups. And we're going to follow them for a period of time to see if any of them develop untoward side effects. That's the key. So in as much reasonable certainty as we can, and nobody can entirely eliminate the possibility of adverse reactions, as I previously said, but the, the chances of that are going to be extremely low by the time these trials are done. So if you start enrolling in July, we expect to have data on them by November uh, and hopefully put them out by December or January. So I am quite confident that the safety part of the process is not being circumvented, that as long as we enroll enough people in the studies, we will have that data. And what was the third part of your question? I forget. Uh, the third part of my question was how long the immunity yeah, will that's, last. That's, that's an unknown at this time. And the reason it's unknown is because we do not know one, if the antibodies that are made last long. Two, if the virus is going to come back in a different form with mutations next year. I would say reasonably to expect 12 to 18 months of immunity at this time. It is entirely possible that we'll need to do the vaccination on a once a year basis like we do with the flu vaccine. But those are total unknowns at this time. So we do not know. And of course, time will tell. Uh, that's all the questions that uh, I have for today. Well, I again want to remind all my listeners that we are in the middle of what is probably the biggest global threat to all of us as societies, as countries, but we're in it together with some prudent basic steps and uh, staying current on the knowledge we can get through it. My job here will always be to try to summarize what I see in the wide variety of medical data and present it to you in the simplest form. Have a great week, be safe, and till next week, thank you. Thank you.